0: Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together. Glad you could join us. (laughs) I appreciate the (laughs) interaction there with Brother Martin. Yes, uh, you think I'm Mr. Postmillennialist. Well, we'll see. One of these days, maybe. So today, we are going to continue our study of Isaiah. And uh, we're going to see more of what we saw last week with... uh, some some predictions from Isaiah of what's going to happen in the near term, but then some uh, look into the future. And maybe this will play into the post millennial discussion. Although we're not going there today. I don't think. Hey, Curtis, good morning, Keith. Glad you're with us and the rest of you as well. Uh, before we get into the study, a couple of quick notes. Uh, number one is uh, cut to the heart. I don't know if you are with us this morning, but I saw your uh, comment. Uh, you asked about 1 Peter 3 and uh, Jesus preaching to the spirits imprisoned there. Uh, you asked for some resources. I do have something. Uh, I teach on that every three years in our NCST course, and I do have some thoughts on it. I don't think I have anything... That I can refer you to as far as sermons or or anything like that. But let me uh, let me do a little more uh, digging and see if I, I think I might have written a. I know at one point I had a commentary on First Peter, uh, first draft anyway, written that I've never published, and uh, so that might be something I could send to you. So stay tuned. I'll uh, I'll get back to you on that. Second thing is our uh, New Covenant School of Theology, our NCST Seminary classes start two weeks from tonight. So if you are interested in uh, taking classes, you can audit them, you can take them for credit. We have an MDiv program, we have a, a Certificate of Biblical Theology program. We're going we're to start uh, the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. So one course covered John's Gospel and his three epistles. Uh, we do block courses, so they're four weeks, Monday, Tuesday nights, 530 to 830 Mountain Time. And if you... Can't make them live to each of them. We do record them, and you can catch up, uh, you know, a day or two later. So, anyway, if you're interested, go to newcovenantschooloftheology.org and hit apply and sign up, and we'll uh, we'll see about getting you enrolled in that. So, if you're interested in studying John together with us, we'd love to have you. Speaking of John, that's uh, where I want to start today. As we uh, we will get to Isaiah, but I want to I want to set it up with this: Jesus. Uh, announced to his disciples in John's gospel that, that the time had come for him to be glorified, meaning uh, the time for his death on the cross was coming. And uh, he says this in chapter 12, leading into a, a passage that I'm sure you're familiar with. He says, now my soul has become troubled. He's troubled because he knows what's coming is, is the cross. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. See what he's getting at? Should I ask the Father to to keep me from the cross? That's the reason I came. That's the purpose I came. He says, Father, glorify your name. Right? So here we see just unwavering devotion to the mission and to the Father. Uh, Now, later on in the other Gospels, we'll see in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is a moment when he's at at that crisis point when he does ask the Father if there's a, a way for this cup to pass from him. And he's just—he's—he's he's human as well as divine, right? And so that's just the—the human—the humanity of of facing the moment. But even there, you remember what he follows up with: "Yet not my will, but your will be done." So, uh, really great stuff to to think about. But let's let's move on here. A voice came out of heaven: "I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again." So, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. The voice comes from heaven. I have glorified my name, and I will glorify my name again. So, the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has come not for my sake, but for your sakes. And now look at this statement by our Lord. Now, judgment is upon this world now the ruler of this world will be cast out and i if i am lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself so a couple things here you see as he's heading toward the cross jesus says judgment is on the world and the ruler of this world that would be satan right uh, he's going to be cast out And then he says, if I'm lifted up from the earth to the cross, I will draw all men to myself. So we have uh, judgment on the world and Jesus drawing all men to himself. Where does he get that? Now, yeah, he's Jesus. He's got, he knows the plan, all that. But my point is, is he is referring to some of the things we've been seeing in Isaiah. And we're going to see it again today in the Oracle of Damascus. The, the whole We talked about this last week, right? The whole uh, Great Commission, going to all the world, that was not new news. We looked at Luke 24, where Jesus rebukes the disciples for not realizing, not knowing that the Old Testament taught that the Messiah had to suffer, that he was going to rise again, and that, that the good news of his kingdom would be preached in all the world. That was not new news. shouldn't have been new news. Uh, the, maybe the most famous passage of all uh, in John's gospel, John 3. Let me pull that up for you. We know this, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son to the world to condemn the world, but the, the world to be saved uh, through him. Uh, We see this all through John's gospel world. The Jews had a hard time with this. This understanding that the Messiah was never intended exclusively for the Jews. And so when John says here, God loved the world and he sent his son for the world, that whoever believes, meaning whoever, Jew or Gentile, any nation, that they would escape the judgment uh, that the Jew uh, that boggled the Jew's mind. The Jew was thinking the Son of Man would come in judgment, and he did. From one perspective, we saw that in in John 12, the first passage I read to you. Now judgment has come to the world, but it wasn't the way the Jew thought of it. He wasn't going to wipe out everybody except the Jews. So where would the Jew get all this this idea, and why would Jesus expect them to know it? Well. It's from passage, passages like Isaiah 17, so let's look at it. So we've looked at the oracle of Babylon, the oracle of Moab. Um, what was the other one in there? <laughs> I've already already forgotten. Oh, Philistia. Uh, here's the oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city. It will become a fallen ruin. The cities of Eroer are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down in, and there will be no one to frighten them. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim, and sovereignty from Damascus, and the remnant of Aram. They will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. So let me pull up the, uh, the map that we have used earlier in this series. You see there, Aram, for those of you on watching a video, up in the uh, upper right, Aram and then there's Israel, right? The northern kingdom is Israel. Aram uh, is a, a pagan land. And then Damascus up uh, in the top right corner there, that's the capital of Aram. Remember, we saw this in chapter 7. Uh, Israel and Aram had combined forces and put pressure on Judah to join them in resistance to Assyria. And uh, Judah, Ahaz, didn't do that. He tried to leapfrog them and and tried to find comfort in Assyria. Uh, so uh, we've seen Israel and Aram before. Damascus, again, the, the capital of Aram. And now God is predicting that the end is coming for them. Uh, is- Assyria is going to make it their way into Aram and Israel and, and destroy them, wipe them out. And, and God says here that uh, there will be uh, le- room for the flocks to lie down and no one will frighten them. There, there aren't going to be enough men left to run off the, uh, the wild animals that roam around. And interestingly here at the end of verse three, he says, they, the remnant of Aram, so they won't all be destroyed either in Aram or in Israel, which he calls Ephraim here. They won't all be destroyed, but they'll be like the glory of the sons of Israel. Question comes, is that, uh, is that, that could be almost a sarcastic statement. The glory of the sons of Israel is going to be reduced to a very small number. And Damascus is going to just be just like that. Or it could be a hopeful statement that there will be some in Israel and Aram that will be left. Both of those are kind of uh, laid out here in the upcoming verses. So it's hard to decide which of those verse 3 is talking about. But he does go on and explain that both are true. There will be a remnant and there will be judgment. Now in that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. See, there's the judgment. Jacob or Israel Will fade, and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. It will be even like the reaper gathering the standing grain as his arm harvests the ears, or it will be like one gleaning ears of grain in the valley of uh, Rephaim. So, like when when the farmers are out there with their sickle and they're reaping the harvest and most of the grain is gathered in, most of the, the wheat is chopped down. That's what's going to happen to Israel and Aram. They're going to be devastated and demolished. Yet, verse 6, gleanings will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives on the topmost bough, four or five on the branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. So the, 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 the fruits in the uppermost part of the tree kind of thing that You can't quite reach too easily. There will be a few of those left. Uh, It won't be complete annihilation of these nations, but near annihilation. In that day, man will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made, even the ashram, an incense stand. So again, interesting, we have we have judgment coming, we have the preservation of a remnant, and then this this declaration that the the remaining people will abandon their false gods, their idols, and will look to the holy one of Israel. That's that's God. Which raises the question, when? You know, is this is this talking about the exiles that do get to return to Jerusalem? Ezra and Nehemiah and, and those of their day maybe they they certainly did turn their backs on the idols and uh, and from that point forward were uh, were not given to idolatry per se. but Aram seems to be included in this as well. They're part of this vision and we don't see Aram, we don't see the the Gentiles, the pagans, trusting in the Holy One of Israel. So it raises that question, when is this, uh, the fulfillment of this? And that was the first in that day statement, which is a recurring phrase we've seen before. And we're going to see it three times here. The second one is, in that day, their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest or like branches which they abandoned before the sons of Israel and the land will be a desolation. So we see more, judgment here, more statements of the judgment in that day. Why? For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of a strange God. So we, we've we left the hope now and we're back to their betrayal of God and the coming judgment upon them. Then we have the third, in the day that you plant it, you carefully fence it in, and in the morning you bring your seed to blossom, but the harvest will be a heap in a day of sickliness and incurable pain. So, we're back to judgment. We're back to God saying, I'm going to come, and though you you, you act like there's prosperity in your future. You think things are fine, Israel, Aram. No, there's a day of, of sickliness, of incurable pain coming. So we're back to judgment, right? And then he pronounces a, a curse, alas, or, or woe, uh, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of the nations, who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like the whirling dust before a gale. So the nations are going to come, Assyria being the first one. The nations are going to come like like waters like a like a hurricane or um, the waves crashing in on the coastlands kind of thing they're going to come violently up upon uh, Israel and Aram but then the Lord's going to stop them they're not going to utterly destroy everything God is in control here and he will speak his rebuke and then the roaring waters will Will cease. So judgment's coming. He's going to bring Assyria. He's going to bring the nations, but then he'll stop it when he's ready. A couple of things come to mind. First, I, I just think of you wonder if is there some of this in the background of the story when Jesus calms the storm. Right again. Look at the look at the uh, the phrasing here. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters so the the na the the comparison of of the nations used to judge Israel and aram are compared to the rumbling of many waters, but then Jesus rebukes them, and those waters stop. Oh I shouldn't say just God rebukes them and the, and the waters stop. and I just wonder is there is there any hint would would the disciples when jesus uh, when he calm the storm, right? He's asleep in the boat, and uh, and the mighty waters rage, and the disciples are scared for their lives, and they go get him up, say, how can you be here sleeping? And Jesus says, oh, you have a little faith, and he speaks the words, peace be still, and the waters are calmed. Well, those of dis- Those disciples have had this passage in mind, that this is the one who has the authority to speak the word and stop nature and the nations. You see what I'm getting at? If you recall, if you compare uh, the different gospel accounts, it says that the disciples were, were afraid of the storm. Then after Jesus calmed the storm, it said they were very much afraid. Like they were terrified of the storm but they understand storms right natural disasters kind of thing but they grew even more terrified by this one who had the power just in his spoken word to make it stop i don't know interesting but it is uh i find it interesting that this same imagery is used in both places that the the, the nations are compared to waters and God will rebuke them and the waters will stop and Jesus doing that. Not that there's a fulfillment here so much as that being a representative a, a, a indication that Jesus is the God who will judge the nations and has power over nature. you see the correlation that I'm questioning there? I don't know. It's just interesting to me. The second thing is uh, that we should dr- take note of is simply the, the truth that God controls everything. And I know we, we know this as Christians, we say this, everything is under his control, but he's the one bringing these nations as his instrument of judgment. And when he's ready for the judgment to stop, he speaks the word and it stops. So as we think about what's happening in the U.S., think about what's happening in Ukraine, other wars, other uh, other things that are happening, natural disasters, so-called, and wars and all that. It's all under God's sovereign judgment and command. And when He's ready to change from one activity to another, He just says the word, and it and it changes. It says that evening time. Behold, there is terror. Before morning, they are no more. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who pillage us. So this is now Isaiah identifying with uh, those who are experiencing some of these threats. And he says, when God is ready, he'll shut it down. And uh, their portion, they'll be terrified now when God decides it. And, and those who pillage us, God will protect us when he's ready. Which is important for us as we look. I know uh, some of our folks here that are with us this morning are experiencing some of this persecution, in a sense, for standing with conviction, uh, some at least part, part, partially motivated by uh, what they believe are pleasing to the Lord, and it's costing them. And to take comfort in this, that the storm is terrifying the uncertainty. We think about losing our livelihood. Think about losing um, property. All of that, and we hold fast. We trust the Lord. We we do what is right, and say, okay, when He's ready for this storm to pass, it will pass. And until then, we we trust Him. But those who are pillaging us, as uh, as Isaiah says, they will experience God's judgment. Then chapter 18, alas, O land of whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush. So if you know your map, uh, I don't think this map has this. No, it doesn't. It doesn't go down that far. But if you you follow it on down through Judah and further south, if you were to pull up a map there, uh, this land of Cush, there's Ethiopia, you know, south of Egypt, into some of those lands, Cush is down there. And that's what's being discussed here that the lands in ancient Cush in Ethiopia, south of Egypt, uh, those lands that la- lie beyond the rivers of Cush, he says, which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters. So those, those lands south, way south of Judah, down to Egypt and Ethiopia and such, they are sending envoys to different nations, seeking alliances to try to uh, repel the Assyrians. They know this nation is coming. They know they are fierce, and they're seek, They're sending these messengers throughout the, the various lands, saying, "Hey, who will join with us to uh, to try to stave off the attack of the Assyrians?" And and here's their message: Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. Uh, so they're seeking anyone who will help anywhere, including Judah. And then we get what I think is Isaiah's response to those envoys. So imagine this say, Ethiopia sending messengers to the king of Judah saying, hey, will you help us? Will you join forces with us in trying to resist Assyria? Isaiah shows up. He's part of this meeting. And he has a different message to declare than they were expecting. You are seeking help from other nations. And Isaiah says, let me tell you where there is hope. Let me tell you where there is salvation from the enemies that are coming. This is what he's going to say here is very similar to what we saw last week that they're looking for a human explanation of all these things and Isaiah preaches the gospel to them. Isaiah tells them, join forces with us in waiting for the one judge who's coming. Look what he says. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth, As soon as a standard is raised on the mountains, you will see it. And as soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. See how he's using the same imagery that we've seen earlier? That God is going to put his his banner up on a hill, clear out all the trees in the forest and anything that might obstruct the view. He's going to put his his flag up there and wave it and the nations are going to see it. People are going to see it. And he adds to it here that the trumpet is going to blow and it's going to blow so loud that all the nations everywhere, even down past Egypt, they're going to hear this trumpet that is blowing. Is this the last trumpet? Maybe. For thus... The Lord has told me, I will look from my dwelling place quietly, like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. What does that mean? Well, heat in sunshine, that's just the most natural thing in the world, right? It's it's obvious. It, it It's not... Uh, it's not remarkable dew in the heat of harvest dew in the in the morning right after a cool night before the, the sun comes you have the dew uh, on the on the crops so god is sort of uh, just just observing in his dwelling place from he- he's in heaven and it's as obvious, his, his observation of all that's happening is as obvious as, as the sun producing heat. It's not a remarkable thing here. He's watching. He says, for behold, the har- or before the harvest, rather, as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, so when it's time, then he will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives and remove and cut away the spreading branches. When God decides it's time for the harvest, he's just observing, watching. But when it's time, then he will do his act of pruning and cutting off branches. They will be left together for mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them. And all the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time on them. So his judgment will come. And when he's ready, then he will do his His work, his act and and. There'll be nothing left except for the birds to uh, clean up. And then he throws this in here. At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. Fascinating. So remember, we've talked about this. Peter tells us that these prophets write, they, they see their visions, they write about Christ and the sufferings he must endure and then the glories to follow. And even they were looking at what they saw and trying to figure out when and what is this really referring to and how does this work? So here we have interwoven the near term judgment of of Israel and Aram and God just biding his time until he decides to do this. And yet at the same time, this vision without warning is is bigger than that or broader than that or uh, more distant than that where uh, God's going to put his banner up in the hill and the nations are going to bring their tribute. Their, here it's the gift of homage to the Lord of hosts. To the place where he his name is, Mount Zion. Right? You see that? At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts. From the people tall and smooth. He already referred to these kind of people. The, the, the far off people. The nations beyond Israel. Beyond Judah. And they will bring it to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. What did we look at at the very beginning? Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. I think Isaiah is seeing this. I think Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of this. He is the banner that is going to be lifted up. And the nations, the far off nations will see and and they will come to him. And so he's working out his judgment and his salvation. The nations are both bringing tribute to Jesus as people from every tribe, tongue and nation come to believe the gospel, put their faith in Christ and worship him. And he's bringing judgment upon them, which Maybe we've come full circle, Martin, to the whole post-mill discussion. This is this is what keeps me, prevents me from adopting that label altogether is uh, still searching through. And, and um, I know you, you're going to have verses to throw at me and that's fine. You can do that. But I, I, what I do see here very clearly are both of these things happening. People coming to faith, the nations coming to faith, and Jesus judging the nations. The question is, does the Bible also teach a time when uh, judgment will be largely done and uh, most of the people living in most of the nations are going to be bringing the tribute? And I know there's differences of opinion on different people uh, from people on here, and we'll get into more of this when we get to Isaiah 65 and 66 and even more before that. So, you know, let's not debate this just yet, but feel free to throw your verses at me. I'm, I'm happy to receive those. But let's at least let what is being said here stand very clearly. Isaiah foresaw judgment upon the wicked nations and their worship in and honor of, of his son. And Jesus self-consciously spoke of that. So it's amazing. This is you know 700 years before Christ and he's declaring these things. And this should give us hope as we preach the gospel to our neighbors and missionaries who are sent all over the world. It's hopeful The people are going to respond. So Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, and he was lifted up, then I will draw all men, there will be people all over the world that will come to me. So good stuff, I think. I uh, love this. This is great stuff. We'll continue tomorrow with some more of the oracles and, uh, and see what we can learn from it. Until then, have a great day in the Lord Jesus. Rejoice and be glad in this day he's made. And uh, Lord willing, we'll see you tomorrow. Take care.